tiny in all that air. The Philip Larkin Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to Tiny in All That Air. My name is Lynn Lockwood and I'm a trustee of the Philip Larkin Society. So after last month's whirlwind ride through the life of Sydney Bechet, we're now back in more familiar territory. Today my guests are Alex Howard, Clarissa Hard and Kyra Piperides. And the focus of our conversation is their research into Philip Larkin's poetry as the current generation of Larkin academics. As they will discuss, they're all at different stages of their research careers, but all are tied together by their great love for Larkin's work and their lively and questioning approach. And I'm very pleased to say they're all now trustees of the society. I'm um, Alex Howard. The first poem of Larkin's I ever heard was in 2006, and it was read out to me by the lecturer who had then become my PhD supervisor in Larkin. And it was High Windows. And I'd never heard a poem like that before, ever, ever. I don't know why it didn't come into my education at school, because I know Larkin's quite big in schools, but I know it, all I can say is I heard that poem and it sort of changed what I thought a poem could be. And then I bought a copy of the collected poems that became very battered and I actually kind of took it travelling with me and it's still here and really battered. It Like a Faber and Faber edition shouldn't be this bastardised with pen and ink and horrible Ooh, scrawlings. Oh, no, not pen and ink. I, it really has. Mine's, um, mine's, I thought mine was bad. It's just that. Oh, <laughs> no, look at that. And that's the collected poems. That's that's hardcore. That is um, hardcore. Yeah. The first ever um, PLS AGM I went to, the distinguished lecturer was Archie Burnett. Oh, cool. Talking about that was a year. So, yeah, that's really good. Anyway, jumping ahead. Go on, Alex. Hi, hi Windows. Um, yeah. And um, I finished my PhD eventually in 2019. And then just earlier this year, my monograph, which was based on the PhD, came out. And it's all about Larkin and place and space. But it's took a slight um, change from the thesis by focusing on travel a little bit more. So I, I can safely say that after all those years, which I think is kind of incredible, really, you know, incredible testament to the poetry, it's never got boring. It's never got hackneyed, tired. I've always got a buzz from reading the poems and I still love him just as much today. Um, love his poetry, you know, the bloke himself. I think, you know, I don't know whether he'd liked me. He'd have probably found me one of these people who clock on every September in the um, higher education sector. But um, yeah, I've, I've just always loved his work. So that's, that's how it all started, really. That one poem that was read out to me in 2006 just sort of sounded this starting rifle for this whole kind of Larkin obsession that would follow. That's amazing. Is that's a testament to the power of uh, teachers and you know yeah. lecturers actually, and what, what what an impact they can have on yeah. your life. Definitely, yeah. um, Clissa, how how did you uh, come to Larkin? Ah, uh, gosh, when I was thirteen, uh, my brother gave my grandmother uh, a, a book of the, the collected poems uh, for Christmas, and she read aloud Obard. 
which was <laughs> slightly sobering moment on, on Christmas, gotta say. But I found it absolutely um, harrowing. It stopped me dead in my tracks, uh, especially moving. Since my grandma was, it was my grandma reading it, uh, quite elderly. Uh, and I, I thought to myself, I'd, I'd never heard any poetry so direct and so searingly honest. Um, I, I was very impressed with his economy of language, you know, his ability to pack so much into such, such a short um, space of time. And uh, I, I continued to read Larkin for pleasure. I always had him by my bedside table. And when I got to university, I thought, you know, maybe it's time that I start writing about him in an academic sense. I was a little bit worried that it, it might kill my enjoyment of the poetry. But like Alex was saying, um, it's, never, it's never become hackneyed. Yeah, I, I love I love Larkin, as we all do. Oh, and I've got to add um, some background as well. <laughs> you know, uh, so I'm I'm Clarissa Hard, and I'm a second year PhD student at uh, the University of Cambridge, uh, studying Larkin. So I'm very much the the Larkin baby of this uh, of this chat. <laughs> and is anybody else studying Larkin at Cambridge at the moment that you're aware of? Oh no, yeah, none. No. And it's my um. It was very difficult for me to secure a supervisor. And actually, my supervisor is a, is a Ted Hughes expert, so I'm not sure what Larkin would have made of that. Um, but you know, he would have, I think he would have been rolling his eyes, yeah. you know, a little yeah. bit. He doesn't wear a leather jacket, though, so <laughs> it's all um, does, yeah. he, does he bring a hunting rifle into, the, into his tutorials? No, not quite. I think I'll, that, that might uh, trespass upon some <laughs> health and safety guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Kyra, do you want to introduce yourselves? I know some of the podcast uh, listeners will have heard you before because you helped me launch the podcast all that long time ago. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm Kyra. I finished my PhD, which um, had had quite a lacking focus. I wasn't totally lacking focused um, last year. Um, how did I get interested in Larkin um it was kind of like Alex but in a very a very different way um and I'm not sure if I might have already told this story here before but I'll, t I'll tell it again because it's a good one um my interest in Larkin came from spite because my uh, I had a college teacher who um I didn't see eye to eye with and he wasn't a Larkin fan so um <laughs> When I discovered Larkin, I, I used the opportunity to write on Larkin as much as I <laughs> as much as I could, um, and it kind of went from there. Um, so then I, I went to study at Hull, um, and I've kind of I've not looked back really. Um, like you know, like both Clarissa and Alex have said, it doesn't get boring. Um, you know, I've been working on Larkin's poetry for a long time now, and I still find you know, I still find it pleasant to read um in a non-work sense as well as in a in a work sense and you know i'm just always struck by new things every time i read it mm. and what i suppose i should say that um i'm currently writing my book on yorkshire poetry um which is going to be published by routledge uh next year 2022 oh, congrats <laughs> yay congrats here yeah so everyone's at um different stages in terms of doctoral study of Larkin, which why we thought it would be a good opportunity for the three of you to come along and, and just talk about that. Because I know 
as a society, we quite often reflect on how Larkin's sort of role in education at the moment and how Larkin is taught or not taught. And obviously with myself as a teacher's teaching background, one of the ways I got involved with the Larkin Society was because I was teaching the Wits and Weddings at A-level for the first time. And uh, I just thought joining the Larkin Society would be a good way of finding a bit more uh, out about Larkin. And it kind of like snowballed at that point. So I thought it might be quite good then if we have a bit of an overview of where, where you, how your studies kind of look at Larkin and then maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about Larkin in education in a wider sense and how we, how we see Larkin sort of lying in the world of education. I think the reason that we can continue to enjoy Larkin after such a long period of time, because already here we've sort of spoken about how, you know, he kind of stands the test of time. He keeps being enjoyable. Is there are so many ways you can look at him? He puts sort of as uh, as Clarissa says, he puts such pressure on a sentence, um, such pressure on a sentence, and he uses such an economy of language that it's like looking through a sort of kaleidoscope when you look at one of his um, sentences, and it can be pluralized in so so many ways. You can kind of use Larkin as as quite an, a basic introduction to verse on a course because mm. he he checks out on all those things. He's he's a great master of form. He kind of you know will do a good A B A B rhyme scheme. But then at the same time, you can you can whack him on a course about English heritage and place and space. And then you can put him onto a course about um about symbolism and and how he sort of you know at times. He kind of reconditions the sort of uh, the French symbolists, you know, Mallarmé and, you know, and his, his famously sticky relationship with the modernists. So mm. I think I think that's why he's 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 a sort of um, he's 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 like the he's like the tool in your toolbox that will kind of a sort of Swiss army knife of a poet mm. that you can kind mm. of chuck into a uni course and um, pull out one aspect of him. And, and he demonstrates the issue or the theme quite nicely and then he can be kind of um put to put to another use um that, that makes him sound quite reductive and almost kind of a bit sort of um formulaic and dull which he's not so i don't want to say that either um i just, i just think he's um there are so many ways you can keep turning him looking in at, at his work um mm. that really will always give it new life and i think that's that's personally why i'm now sort of after 15 years and um, obviously, I didn't look at him properly until my PhD, but I'm, I'm still sort of hopelessly in love with the, the way he, he writes. Um, you know, I, I think that's why sort of my approach, I think, is quite new critical. It does seem to be in vogue these days, and I know it's not for everyone's tastes, but I think if you get really up close with the sentence structure, that's where the magic really comes across rather than approaching Larkin through biography or a particular sort of Marxist lens or something. So, Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, I think it's quite easy to get bogged down with preconceived theoretical models and, uh, and actually you, you end up shoehorning the poetry um, into those theories rather than, you know, approaching the, the poetry head on and then going from there once you've drawn mm. your conclusions about the minutiae of the verse. And I, I've yeah. always found that much more productive uh, and much more honest. Uh, you have yeah. this sense of integrity as well. You're giving the verse some, some space uh, to breathe, which is what I liked about your, your research, Alex, actually, when I did my review of it. 
I really did enjoy it. So. Well, I want to point out that um, listeners won't have seen, and Lynn, I don't think you saw either, was the, because you like look, looked away, was the look of utter glee. It was very sweet on Alex's face when we all held up our <laughs> copies of the book. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. It was sweet. <laughs> yeah, it's just seeing yourself in print, you know, because I think yeah. everyone starts in PhD. <laughs> <laughs> well you you know you'll get there and it will be yeah. the product of your phd but there's this there's this sort of almost indelible unshiftable um belief when you start a phd that there is going to be no importance attached to this and you're going to be in your little hole kind of thinking away um but the book i have to say um gave me larkin friends i i I, until the book, honestly, in January, I knew none of you guys. I knew none of the Philip mm. Larkin Society, mm. none of the work. And um, you do realise that, um, you know, there is actually a, a Larkin, an enormous Larkin fan club out there. And uh, I'm really grateful that, you know, books can sort of, uh, even if no one reads it, it <laughs> they can be the kind of, um, the sort of, the sort of springboard upon which you can sort of enter into these communities which are incredibly valuable yeah yeah definitely and I found the Larkin Society so I I don't think I'd realized perhaps until maybe I don't know it gradually dawned on me that this was like a really important community to me and um, I think maybe since lockdown, because we've had much more communication, wouldn't you say, Kyra? We, we all actually started yeah, picking up the phone and, and Zooming and WhatsApping. And uh, whereas before, uh, it was kind of quarterly meetings and the very occasional phone call. I didn't even have everybody's phone number. Um, but uh, now I feel like, well, something, there's obviously at the moment quite a lot of uh, discussion about the John Sutherland book mm, yeah. <laughs> on uh, yeah. WhatsApp and uh, emails. Um, and so, you know, it's, it is great. And I think we've been through some highs and lows together as a yeah. as a set of trustees, anyway, as a committee. Um, but what's even better as well in the last year, the communication has allowed us to get people like yourselves along, you know, Alex and Carissa and, and uh, the volunteer group that's starting to grow. And, it's like I, you know, there's a lot of people now that really feel they're quite involved with the society, even though they're not a trustee, which is really good and not where we were maybe a couple of years ago. So I think social media and IT has really, really helped. I was just thinking though in Letters Home, I got um I got the impression that James put a lot of those in because he wanted to show that kind of domestic side of, mm. of Larkin and the softer yeah. side of Larkin. And I think he he obviously had to select a very small like percentage of the, the actual number of letters and postcards there were. So I think he went for the ones that were the most charming and kind of interesting. Um but yeah they have been a bit underused we haven't really used them as a society just just the creature the creature i think could be you know the larkin drawing of himself i'm sure you could do quite a lot the of seal. analysis of that. Doesn't, it, doesn't he draw himself yeah, with, seal. with glasses yeah um, yeah yeah but also he cares he cared about animals a, a lot you know I, I think of um a hedgehog he photographed and then wrote about mm -hmm. in the mower and I, I think he bequeathed quite a lot of money to the rspca uh yeah. when, he, when he died uh, so it's quite, yeah, it's in interesting. They are. Yeah, the mower was the first poem that I came to. And, and just when Alex was saying that 
about High Windows never having heard anything like that before. I picked up a copy of Larkin when I was about 18 and just found the mower, didn't know really anything about him. And I just, it struck me as very unusual as well. Uh, just the whole thing about running over a hedgehog. I just couldn't quite get past it that somebody thought that was a poem. There was a poem in there, Killing a Hedgehog with a Lawnmower. And uh, it really like haunted me for a long time, you know, and th there is something about how Larkin can do that to us. It's very memorable. Yeah, incredibly memorable. It's like taking that, that moment of banality and sort of jet propelling it through, through kind of a great um, kind of control of symbol and language into this sort of great memorable sort of paragon of, of, of life. Um, Take One Home for the Kiddies actually is a sort of poem that does that as well because it's about the newts and you know, it's it kind of embroiders this idea of death and that animals are always dying in our presence yeah. and, and how yeah. do we as a society, because, you know, I'd argue he did think about society more than he lets on. How do we as a society kind of cogitate this? How do we work through it? Yeah, mixed um, mitosis as well. Mm. Oh, yes. Mm. You know, the rabbit yeah. running in circles. Gosh, that is, yeah. you, I think, is that, is that the poem which uses the word suppurate? In which, yeah, which I just thought was the most beautiful word. Yeah, and at grass was one of the first poems I loved as well, and I still oh, love yeah, that. I love it still breaks my heart. Mm. The the yeah. racehorses. Um, it's a very moving poem. So, um, Cara, do you want to talk us a bit through your sort of PhD focus? Um, oh uh, yeah. Um, so a lot of my my kind of angle on Larkin, my work on Larkin, um, links to my interest in the North and in um, Yorkshire. So, um, you know, I talk about the relationship to Hull, um, but, you know, something that's something that's really interesting to me is how Larkin's poems kind of contrast or, you know, uh, in some way similar to other uh, poets who are writing in Yorkshire at the same time, um, how how you can find Yorkshire within the poetry. But also something that's really fascinating to me is, um, you know, seeing how Lacan's influence is tracked through to um, modern and contemporary poets that are, you know, writing in Hull up to now, writing in Yorkshire up to now. And yeah, um, I think, you know, that says, that says things about the power of his poetry and, you know, the, the kind of way that it sticks with you, like we were just talking about. Um, but also it says things about place as well. And it's uh, these, these things uh, that obviously resonate with a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of writers. Did you come to Hull because of your interest in Larkin? Was that the reason why you chose the university? Mm, so kind of partly. Partly. So maybe, shall I tell you about my relationship with Hull? Um, <laughs> If, if you want to, yeah, that would be great. I, yeah, I love, um, I love Hull. Um, I, I came to Hull actually um, a bit younger. Uh, we moved up um, when I when I was a child, um, and I've never actually lived in Hull. But I find Hull, um, it feels like home to me. I live kind of half an hour outside of Hull, um, but as soon as I set foot in the city, it feels like home. Um, mm. And that's kind of why I went to university there. Um, and so it was, you know, it was partly Larkin, partly that it was a city that was that was kind of um, really uh, meant a lot to me. Um, when we when we moved up, my mum, she didn't drive at the time and she took a bus over for the Christmas shopping. And so it was, you know, it was dark, it was cold. It was the middle of winter. And she said that she's never felt so welcome somewhere. Um, 
and and I just love that and that's that that is whole to me um like it's it just it feels safe and it feels um you know I think like my family have a lot of the same feelings about Hull as we can find in in Larkin's writing um and so you know that's that's partly why I ended up studying at Hull Larkin had something to do with it too though yeah yeah and if uh you've been to Hull Clarissa do you know Hull at all I I've been to Hull once um I went a couple of years ago for a research trip, you know, to look at the archives there, but also to familiarise myself with the city. I did the Larkin Trail. It was a very, very nerdy trip because I, I downloaded these, <laughs> these um, playlists of, you know, some of Larkin's favourite songs, mostly yeah. Sydney Beshe. Uh, and obviously I had my tattered volume with me and I went around the city and, and uh, read certain poems at certain places. Uh, visited Larkin's grave, which was really, really moving. Um, mm. oh, and I also listened to some of Larkin's recordings of his own poetry. Uh, uh, yeah, so I was completely immersed in Larkin land for that sort of three, four days. And I, I rented oh, I an Airbnb there. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm definitely glad that I that I went and I, I particularly like the train journey there um obviously I I'd imagined it quite a lot in my head that that journey to and to and from yeah um from Wits and Weddings which I think is actually going to King's Cross isn't it yeah you do you do here going up and then Wits and Weddings coming home yeah yeah <laughs> and um Alex how well do you know Hold? do you know well sort of like I suppose like Clarissa, I've only been there once, and it was for a sort of Larkin-based exploration in the archives. And I got immediately got a, a warm feeling from the place. And I, it's hard sometimes to say why that is, isn't it? Um, it's a very kind of difficult to define thing, but I immediately got a sense of, of warmth and uh, friendliness. And I, I like the topography of it. I like that weird kind of when you come alongside that very flat sort of, um, embankment on the train then you see that wonderful bridge and then there's this spit goes out and I remember there was this sort of um, there's a sort of lighthouse boat bobbing sullenly in the corner and then there was this sort of ring road I think it was called Ferren's Way is it Ferenis Way Ferren's Way Ferren's Way yeah and um, I stayed in an Ibis hotel on that um, oh, which I've, incidentally I've in there. <laughs> I found yeah. out in my very room a murder had happened because I was no. reading the Hull Gazette but that's oh a completely God. different story um I, and then I went up to um, up to the university, Newlands mm. Park, um, mm. and I went round the. I, I just got a lovely feel for it. And similarly, I went to Larkin's grave, and you know, just. I mean, it's so typically Larkin, isn't it? It's just mm. one of many, many. Um, it's so simple. It's so. Um, mm. It's very moving. But I, I got a I got a wonderful feel for the place, particularly the university. I thought it was very nicely. You know, it's very green, very nicely centred. Grinmore Jones always looks spectacular. Um, yeah. And um, I I just got, particularly walking down that high street, I really got that sort of, that sense that he was trying to, I think, tease out in poems like here. Mm. You know, the cut price crowd. It was it was very, it kind of reminds me of sort of an East End market. It had that mm-hmm. sort of quite traditional, frenetic, old school kind of market square vibe that um, you can see why Larkin loved this fact that it sort of, this was a sort of place that was lingering on to the old ways. It was a bit cut off, but there was something about it that was sort of doggedly, I felt at least, doggedly sort of traditional and proud. So I've got very good memories of Hull. I'd love to go back. Yeah, mm. so we should organise yeah. a trip. 
Yes. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll get you both down soon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you say you say down, but I. I well, you're up, aren't you? Yeah. But also, this is quite Pulling shocking. down from everywhere. I mean, I I have to admit to my shame that until I went to Hull, the furthest north I'd ever been was Cambridge. Wow. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm very where, are you, where are you from originally then? Hampshire, sorry, kind of area. I've right, moved, okay. And I've lived here so... my whole life, apart from a brief stint in, in Tokyo. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so <laughs> I was quite uh, glad to change that because I'm not, I'm not familiar with the vast majority of my own country and I'd love to explore it more, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Hull's a great place. My mum, um, my mum's family from Hull, so when I go over with my mum, um, I also get like my mum's tour of Hull. <laughs> and um, yeah. she lived and worked um, sort of very near the university as a pharmacy technician in the 60s. So she's very, she's utterly convinced she probably stood on, you know, at a bus stop next to Philip Larkin or something like that at some point. She's quite fascinated by that idea. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just a, a nice sort of added bonus for me, really. And when we went around to see James Booth, I don't know the name of the road that he lives on, um, but my mum my grew up on the road around the corner from him. So it was just so nice for my mum to kind of look around and, and see it, yeah. That's what I really love about Hull is that, you know, you just chance across people who... <laughs> because, because Larkin didn't live that long ago, you chance across these people who have these... Um, these little stories about Larkin. Um, I was just working with a volunteer one day um, and he came out with this story about um, when he he worked construction on the library um, and they were were blasting the foundations of the library and Larkin came down and asked if they uh, wouldn't mind keeping it down a little bit. (laughs) I'm like, that's such a cool story. And that's, you know, just I just came across that by chance. That's so good. And my Airbnb, my, my host, they, they, they said that they used to see Larkin cycling about with his um, sort of beige raincoat, light beige raincoat, his glasses cycling about yeah. the town. His, his bike, like, it looks like an enormous bone shaker. I don't know how he managed to get it all the way up to like Holderness and places like that. He must have had very powerful legs. I know, um, it looks like the sort of bike that, you know, there's no thought that went into the gears or anything like that. There's that, there's that lovely lovely documentary with him and um, John Betjeman. Betjeman, where John oh, I Betjeman love that. Is it Down Cemetery Road? Very, very Rose. charming. Yeah. Down Cemetery <laughs> Road, it's black and white, yeah. And I think it was made in the, wasn't it the 60s or the 70s? And, um, you know, Larkin's all like, what, what, one, one wrote the poetry, one has to write. Yeah. And they have this very sort of old English gentleman discussion. <laughs> and very good that impression. bike features in the start. Oh, God. That, that, that bike's in the start. And um, I always think that's a... That's such a classic bike. Kind of like it myself, it is. to be honest. Get around Edinburgh in that. I don't know where it is, actually. I don't know if it's in the Larkinalia, whether we still have it somewhere. Do you know, Cairo? I don't know. I've not seen it. Not parked outside the back of James Booth's kitchen. <laughs> like, no, it's a lot it's of not. stuff in his house. No. So... Chrissy, you've not really said a lot about your studies. Um, you'll be able to kind of give us a bit of an overview of what areas you've looked at. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, broadly speaking, I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between uh, physicality and the imagination uh, in 
Larkin's poetry, although I do end up invoking other figures such as Hardy, uh, Yeats, D.H. Lawrence, you know, all of whom have had a profound influence on, on Larkin. Mm. So mm. by physicality, I mean the, the material world uh, that we inhabit, you know, dwelling places, different types of spaces and how we divide them up and apportion activity to, um, to certain places and spaces. Uh, the objects and belongings that populate uh, our, our lives, even, even our own bodies, you know, the fact that we encounter the world through our senses, uh, first and foremost. And then I like to put that in dialogue uh, with the imagination. Um, so effectively, it's, it's a conversation between the physical world that we inhabit and the mind that experiences and reflects on it. And that sounds pretty abstract in, uh, when I say it like that, but um, I've, I've always found that Larkin's poetry, there's something very, very uh, intriguing going on with physicality uh, in Larkin's poetry. Some, sometimes things that, that should be very physical seem immaterial, and sometimes <laughs> things that are quite abstract or metaphorical uh, are richly um, material. So I, yeah, I, found, I find that the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think that's absolutely that's a really lovely point, and it reminds me a little bit of um, the old fools mm. when Larkin compares the sort of the degradation of, of mental cognizance mm. to a very solid image. I can't remember quite what it is, but I think it's the sort of the the kind of certainty of the cosmic orbit. I mean, it's very mathematical. I, I love this sort of geometry in some of his similes. I think it's wonderful. But then he equates something that's very unknowable, and again, I forget what it is, with um, <laughs> or something that's very that's very knowable with a simile that's that's quite loose and airy. Uh, it's almost as if like he wants to get these two things in life: something that we know for sure will happen, and something we know we don't know will happen is open ended, and kind of cross the metaphors. Um, and I think that's a I mean, it's just one of the many things in his arsenal, isn't it, that he pulls out and, and just does stunningly. Mm. Yeah, The Old Fools is an, is an incredible poem. It's actually one of my, my favourites. I think I've actually got um, the million petal flower of being here engraved um, onto my iPod uh, back in 20, um, oh, 2013. I did that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just absolutely, it's a beautiful poem. And in this extraordinary image, this idea that, life is just waiting to come into being and then it just bursts out in this mm. kind of rhapsodic image of, of the million petal flower of being here. Oh, it's just beautiful. <laughs> Sorry. I like the image, you know, what uh, you were just saying, Alex, about the kind of geographical element, that image about um, just looking at my copy, the peak that stays in view wherever mm. we go for mm. them is rising ground. And I just find that such a fascinating line and working for an organisation that does a lot of work with people with dementia mm. um i've had sort of discussions with people about you know what dementia is actually like you know and people that are experts at, at working with people with dementia and and obviously there's there's kind of this fear here of lark from larkin but then there's that um that image about the lighted rooms you mm. know and that kind mm. of mm. a lot of a lot of people say to me a lot of my colleagues say to me actually you know there's there's a lot of um happiness in dementia because you're in you're living in the moment and quite often that moment is a moment where your family is still alive or maybe you're a, you're a little boy or a little girl or you're just waiting for mum to come and pick you up and things like that and in that moment you're very happy and and um it's not it's not necessarily a kind of a all suffering yeah you know. I think maybe one of the hardest stages is, is just going 
senile slowly, um, not not necessarily with dementia, but you know sometimes very elderly people, you you can, you know their their grip is on life is slackening, uh, and mm. timelines start to get a little bit confused in their in their heads, mm. but they have enough, um, they're compass mentis enough to know that they're they're forgetting something. In yeah. some ways, total yeah. absolute forgetfulness is easier than partial. Forgetfulness, as you said in your book, Alex, actually, in that that, in that, that was yes. Um, there's that there's that poem, isn't there? The Winter Palace, and oh, yeah. Larkin yeah. talks about it's looking for the thing that blanks out what is causing the damage, and it, it's a it's a you know it's a wonderful kind mm. of um, mm. paradigm he kind of levels there in a way, as Clarissa said, probably better than I'm doing here trying to remember what I wrote. But it's better <laughs> to be absolutely amnesic and forget entirely and have pockets of remembrance through which you can triangulate a bit like that out that's always in inside yeah where yeah. you the sort of the trajectory of your memory across time and space there um so yes it's that <laughs> it's that lovely I, I think there's a sort of like um what we talked about the animals and the sketches there's there's a phd probably waiting to be written about <laughs> and, and memory and dementia actually i think that's mm. Wonderful things could be done there because those poems really. Yeah, I'm definitely quite interested in in um, memory and, and and place and the way that you know I, I sent across that um, rather rather long. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, uh, essay I I wrote a while ago in, on churches and how they seem, yeah. seem to mm-hmm. hold and suspend time and sometimes collapse a sense of sense of time. Uh, but I think that's that's quite an interesting area of, uh, of Larkin's work. The way that places absorb uh, memories and ch- sometimes alter memories over time um, and act as a memento mori, I think, for a grave. Yeah. Yeah, and Hardy's very interested in that uh, as well, these relics of the past that, that stay with us. It's weird, though. I was wondering what you guys make of that because there's been loads of academic debate on when the influence of Yeats, but especially Hardy, mm. sort of ends and, and when it's kind of in its peak. And it seems to be that Hardy kind of lingers as an influence in Larkin a bit, probably the longest, you know? Yeah, I think uh, so. There's, there's echoes of mm-hmm. that Yatesy breathiness kind of peters out pretty quickly after the North Ship ends. Yeah, yeah. It's the Celtic but fever. That, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Celtic fever, <laughs> as Rosson or someone said. I can't remember. But the, no, the Larkin, Hardy thing. Larkin, Larkin said that. Oh, did he himself. say that? Yeah. Oh, gosh, right, um, yeah. And, and also, he, I think in that Betjeman uh, documentary that you mentioning earlier, he, he said... Rather sort of disparagingly, oh, you know, at university I was I was living on Yates and water, <laughs> 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 which is quite you know your daily bread is is Yates. It's not not yeah. too bad, not too shabby. <laughs> no, um, but it's I definitely think Hardy is is the predominant influence. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't. He write about he writes about it most explicitly in the is it the 1966 reissue to the North Ship. Um, mm. Oh, it's in the 19th, maybe it's 1967, I think it's 66, I might be wrong about that. Um, but yeah, he writes about Hardy's influence most explicitly there and kind of renounces Yeats mm. um, mm. Yeah. in a way that makes yeah. it seem like Hardy mm-hmm. not only combined with Yeats, but kind of usurped him. What other kind of drawbacks to studying Larkin? Have you found anything, you know, that's kind of difficult when you're studying Larkin? Anything that, you know, I don't know, naughty about him? Uh, I think, um, I mean, Clarissa and I have spoken about this. I think we've had 
similar experiences in that um, people's people's reactions tend to be, um, and especially I don't know how you feel about this, but especially being a woman studying Larkin as well, people are quite taken aback by that. Um, And I mean, I probably didn't I didn't face this so much because you know my my first degree and my master's degree were at Hull, where, you know, Larkin mm. is pretty accepted <laughs> as part of the degree content. And celebrated yeah. as well as, as you know, a yeah. jewel. But I've, you know, I've been to conferences and stuff where people have said, wait, what, you work on, you work on Larkin and Hughes, really? Mm-hmm. How, can, how can you do that? Yeah. Um, how can a woman work on Larkin and Hughes? I'm like, well, quite easily. Yeah, you. I think that's a very reductive approach. It's like, okay, yeah. so I wouldn't study something because I'm a woman. I mean... Um, yeah. Why not? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think if if someone tells me that I have internalized misogyny for loving Larkin, uh, yeah. one more time, I think I'm going to rip their heads off. <laughs> really, really? Do they feel it's a kind of Stockholm syndrome thing that you've yeah. you've got taken in by him? Like you're you're somehow not sticking up for other women. Right. Well, I think I am sticking up for other women by just doing what I enjoy and and love and find most intellectually stimulating. Um, so yeah, Kyra, I feel I feel your your pain there because <laughs> mm. I've definitely um, received a similar kind of response. And this is, this is based on what people know about Larkin's life and his letters, isn't it? I mean, this is not based on yeah. the poetry. No, it's not. Which is largely a a political. I mean, that's why in the nineties, you know, when the letters uh, and um, Motion's biography came out, it was such a revelation because actually, you know, a, a lot of people thought of Larkin as a kind of doddery old librarian yeah just thinking about the kind of larkin people even at university level mm. having that kind of reaction to larkin and not being able to separate the mm. the poetry from a, a very small part of the man mm. or a kind of um an easy assumption that you know who the man is yeah, yeah in some way but also the double standards as well because um okay ted hughes does get a bit of a bad bad rep but not as much as Larkin I don't think yeah um although mm. arguably you know some pretty uh you know troubled things happened in and around his his life um but also mm. if you take Ezra Pound okay he's not that fashionable anymore but he's still you know people talk about him without a sneer it's like this is the man who 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 uh did anti-semitic broadcasts in Italy during World War II how how can you not <laughs> uh apply the same treatment to pound when you ostracize Larkin. Um, mm. I don't. I don't know. I think people just get on the bandwagon about things, and then certain certain things are taken as as red. Um, you can't question. It's, it's tricky, isn't it? It is tricky because um, you know. I, I think of um, Zadie Smith. She was in a podcast um, a few few months back. I forget the name of the podcast, but she sort of said, you know, as human beings, you know, that is part of our lot is to reconcile these double binds like the fact that i'm you know i eat meat and yet every day there is this you know there is this sort of holocaust of animals dying and yet i continue to and there are many things in life that you continue to do when you know full well there are you know consequences or whatever um sort of ethical and in a weird way being human and being a critic is the problem the unsolvable problem of of leveling up those Two differences. I, it does bother me, you know. It, it doesn't sit comfortably with me that um, you know Larkin was these things, and that he he kind of sang these songs with Monica Jones 
racist songs and that he kind of did a great many things quite openly, almost quite smugly, proudly, that kind of announced his sort of slightly bigoted, well, very, at times, bigoted views. But that doesn't necessarily diminish the fact he wrote some of the most exquisite poems sort of in the English language, definitely mm. in the last 100 years. And I think that is the problem, rather than kind of, you know, running away from it and, and kind of stamping out dissent, that heterodox of dealing with this conflict that's uncomfortable is is part of our our duty, really, mm-hmm. uh, not not to mm. run for it from it. But I think definitely in, in a kind of, you know, I chuck at Pound and I chuck Larkin, well, mainly I chuck Elliot and I chuck Larkin on courses. And I think the thing that they tend to do in tutorial groups is, is make that sway happen into context. You can't stop it. You put Larkin mm-hmm. on a course and you're like, let's talk about these poems. And no sooner have you started talking about the poems than people are sort of characterising Larkin the brand, the dome-headed man that lived in Hull, you know, that had all these girlfriends and never committed. <laughs> and then you're talking about that he lived all over. He, did he live in Northern Ireland? That, oh, that, that, did, he, did he ever live in London? And it very quickly with yeah. Larkin, because he's become this brand in a yeah, way. it's an image. Um, image. It's an mm-hmm. image, this conductionally man that has hijacked, really, the poetry. Yeah. And it's only now, now sort of being redressed yeah. Yeah. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I really liked what you said about... Um, you know how the context creeps in and um, I at the start of this year I set a seminar task for my students with um, they were first year students it was like their first one of their first seminars um, and most of them had no knowledge at all of Larkin Um, and I sat um, I sat here alongside a oh it's an Imtiaz Darker poem that she actually read at the uh, AGM um, a few years ago I think it's called, I, I'll check, but I think it's called By the Side of Humber or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was really actually refreshing to hear them like reading the poem and getting so much from it without bringing any context in because mm. a lot of them, you know, a lot of them didn't know about Hull. A lot of them hadn't been to Hull. Um, so to see this kind of universality of, mm. you know, where can they apply it to um, without knowing any context yeah. about Larkin yeah. or about Imtiaz Darker, mm. um, was yeah was actually a really valuable thing to do which i'm sure now that they've they've done that and they've learned <laughs> a bit about lacking they probably couldn't do the same thing yeah. um but yeah to see the to see that interest kind of grabbed mm. by this um without the context was was mm, amazing it's, it's, really it's nice. it can be yeah, a bit upsetting nice. to sort of they say never meet your heroes and certainly you know when i started reading letters it's strange because especially the ones in the 1940s some of them are so beautiful the james james sutton they're almost mm-hmm. they're kind of mystical in quality. You know, he wants to find a fellow artist who is perpetually kneeling in his heart. You know, it's, it's very <laughs> idealistic. And then, he's, then it's just a flurry of like schoolboy insults and swearing mm. and really graphic, quite sexual images. And it's just a bit tasteless. And it's, it's so strange that there's that mixture of, you know, high and low, but probably in everyone. Um, Mm. Yeah, but it's, of course. it's a bit jarring when you've seen someone in just a particular context to, to read them in another. Yeah, but those letters to King's Amos were never meant for publication. Oh, no. I mean, it's largely in the letters to King's Amos. Yeah, and, <laughs> Amos you know, brought it out it, him. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, they brought it out on each other. And I think Amos sort of egged him on, didn't he? And he mm. Amos loved it. it was, it's really important to Amos, that friendship with mm. Larkin. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And uh, I think for both of them, there was a... Well, the way I kind of see it is it's that uh, release valve of... Mm. Um, you know, they had a very public life and mm. a very public role. Uh, I mean, Kingsley was perhaps a little bit more, it was a bit more known about how he was living and mm. what he was doing, maybe. But uh, to write letters like that to each other must have been a real release for them, I think. Mm. It's not to excuse, like, the racism and things, obviously, but, yeah, but just mm. the silliness, like you say, the silliness, the rudeness, mm. uh, breaking all those rules of how a librarian and a novelist mm. and a journalist should should write to each other, you know. <laughs> he had the uh, diaries destroyed. Yeah, and I'm really glad. Mm. I'm I kind really of wish glad. he had the letters. Dis- I mean, the diaries, goodness me. But I sort of wish he'd had the letters destroyed as well, to I be honest. I think the diaries uh, might have been uh, less offensive than some of the letters because, as you say, he's very much got a, he's playing up to a type, uh, depending on his, his interlocutor, his correspondent. Yeah, uh, he, I, yeah I, I, I find it all a bit stomach-churning and disquieting, really. I, I would like to agree with that, but I've got a horrible feeling the diaries are just as bad, if not worse. He said something on his deathbed, I believe, um, when he sent Betty, I think it's Betty McCarranth, off with one of his final flames his to shred the diaries. Yeah, hmm. his secretary, Ma- he said, Ma- you know... Macarith, Be- yes, yeah. Betty yeah. Macarith. He said, um, you know, they're going to come and get me if this isn't done. And I just thought, oh, golly, don't like mm. the sound of that. Um, I, but I do think, you know, I think what you say is, you know, there is um, there's something truthful in it. And this was a medium that was presumed to be private. You know, it's all coming back to haunt us again. The things these days, you know, very soon, it wouldn't surprise me that people's, um, we're only one hack away. We're only one terrorist hack away from people's private correspondences being outed. Yeah, <laughs> It is very frightening and, mm. you know, it kind of shows that maybe there is a degree of Jekyll and Hyde in everyone, and particularly if you've got a public and private persona, as Lynn mm. said, you know, and he did do that thing. Uh, it, it's this sort of inexorable thing, really, even though he's he was very effeminate and very kind of sensitive. He mm. was around a masculine man and he found himself playing that playing that role, that locker room mm. role, mm. which is ugly yeah. and unattractive and rebarbative and... And nasty, but it's yeah. what Clarissa said, so true. It's their be- the letters are stunning. And I think um John Sutherland mentions this. They are the letters, he really doesn't hold back, particularly the review in the uh, Times that came through on Sunday. I've forgotten who the reviewer was, but really highlighted just how seductive and works of art in the in their own right those letters are to Monica Jones. I mean, they mm. are absolutely beguiling. You cannot read them and kind of not be completely taken in. Um, and then in this, in this, almost in the same breath, it's like ping. He becomes this. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's it's very it's really strange because it, it is just the, the the juxtaposition is so striking. Mm, mm. I like the letters, you know, to to his uh, mother, and I like the letters where he's on holiday. And uh, often quite, they're quite Adrian Molnish, you know, he gets quite yeah. exasperated <laughs> by poor quality hotels. Does yeah. one, is he, I think he's really possibly in Sark and he's, a donkey eats his wallet, something like that. He gets, <laughs> he gets in this really like escapades and like, terrible food that he has to eat. And I, I love that side of him. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the humour of Larkin does get a bit lost as well, doesn't yes. it? Oh, that's mm-hmm. so true. Yeah. People totally forget mm-hmm. that I think a lot of, 
a lot of um, his poetry is quite it's quite tongue in cheek. So, for instance, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, this be the verse. I think of that as quite. Uh, I mean, it's 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 dark humor, uh, but I think yeah. of it as as Riley. Uh, yeah. Riley humorous, uh, really, and also yeah. that compounded yeah, by the yeah. slightly trite rhyme scheme as well. And it feels yeah. like a ballad, lilting along, and it yeah. seems like a yeah. bit of a joke. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, yeah. I'm I'm going to end up doing the thing that I hate and going back to his, you know, his reputation and autobiographical fragments. But what people always say about him who knew him was how funny he was, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. just how incredibly yeah. funny he was, and it's how this quick. As well. sort of quick mm. and witty mm-hmm. and it's this i suppose it checks in with what we said about you know sutton and then amos is he's got this chameleon-like quality he becomes yeah that person i mean he's this sort of effeminate kind of wistful yatesy missing his friend who's who's a mediterranean driver in the war with oh am i getting confused with crispin here no i'm not that was sutton driver sutton and then with amos he was you know this kind of bellicose baldy thing he sort of and adapted. Norman Isles and as I, well. Yeah. Very, very um, playing up to the <laughs> ultra-masculine uh, stereotype. Yeah. Um, mm. What I really liked um, in looking at the Sutherland book where he's, you know, he's looked at Monica Jones's letters is where we can see it again, um, this this way that, you know, he, he matches his persona um, because um, James Underwood wrote, uh, a few years ago now about the kind of old maid persona and a lot of um, Larkin's letters to Monica. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And so, yeah, reading um, how, you know, Monica is writing about scrubbing her floors and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And um, you can see this kind of reflective, reflective persona in the way that, you know, he, he does, um, he does, you know, use these kind of characters in his letters to, um, I guess, mirror this, Mm. this self that he's made within this relationship the idea of um somebody taking your you know like if someone took everything i'd written to all my friends mm. over the years mm-hmm. you know text messages and phone calls i mean you know like terrifying to think <laughs> oh my yeah. god it's over life is over what on earth <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what on earth are they? you know everything completely done t- decontextualized yeah you say things as jokes and um <laughs> you know, and sometimes they're in jokes as well. So someone reading it wouldn't yeah. understand. Just thinking, if anyone looks back at my and Clarissa and Alex's correspondence, it's all just pictures of cats. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Do you think there's a role for literary society? I mean, we've got quite a small membership, relatively. We've got about 350. Um, whereas you think like Dickens has a global, you know, like thousands of people around the world are members of Dickens Society. So, you know, and the Brontes and whatever. But um, I was just sort of quite interested to know what you think about literary societies and about the Philip Larkin Society and what our role might be, really. I think, I don't know, my impressions so far have been universally positive about the Philip Larkin Society. I've really enjoyed all the, the Zoom calls Everyone is so friendly and, and honest and, and so um, unpretentious and down to earth as well. Um, mm. I've really enjoyed mm. my interactions. Um, obviously, the, the pandemic has been horrible uh, for many, many reasons. But I suppose one uh, small takeaway from it is the fact that we have moved very much to a sort of digital age. And actually, 
Yeah. Uh, people all over the world uh, were tuning in uh, to Philip Larkin calls. And it's a way of, it, it's a democratizing process, really, because, you know, mm-hmm. have, we have people mm-hmm. calling in from America, from, from Japan. There's no expense of travel and no mm-hmm. time. I, mean, mm-hmm. I would have to, you know, travel for hours and book a hotel if I wanted to go, um, go to Hull for a meeting. And mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't, mm-hmm. wouldn't do it for a couple of hours. Um, mm. But I would from from my living room, so I think that's. I don't know. Do you think that will will continue sort of going forward? You know, will we continue to have these yeah. calls online? I think so. I mean, I have to travel seventy miles to get to Hull, and I do it for meetings. But it was tough because I often didn't get home till. I often miss. I always miss the end of meetings because that's just our meetings <laughs> never yeah. quite run on time, um, and then I'd have to leave and. Yeah, we wouldn't get home till maybe half 11 at night. Um, and it just wasn't an ideal way of attending a meeting. You're knackered by the time you've got there. You're knackered when you get home and you're tired in the morning for work. <laughs> um, so for me, this is ideal. But then obviously I still want to come up to Hull. So hopefully we can do a bit of a hybrid of the two really mm. in the future um, and come across when I can. But if I can't, I can just join digitally and I think that's an ideal way of doing things for everybody isn't it I mean Julian Henry lives in Oxford I believe you know it's the same for him but I and I've never met never met him physically have you met him Kyra face to face no 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 it's weird isn't it to realize that we've we've worked so closely with these people but yeah yeah we've not actually met in person no yeah I think the society is in a, a really good place and it's going to um keep getting better because I think, you know, the, the love for Larkin is out there. Um, and it's, it crosses such a huge breadth of people, such a huge breadth of class society, you know, background age as well. Age. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It, It transgresses all these things. So incredibly, um, that I suppose the challenge is, is kind of um, is kind of making those people know that there's one of each of them in the society, and I think there is. You know, I think in the society, each of those individuals are represented, and I think mm. that's what's important. I, I I seem to remember very long ago I'd heard of the Philip Larkin Society. I I got the impression it was a very quite a quite a stuffy closed thing. And that might have been unfair. This would have been about sort of 12 years ago. Um, mm. I definitely think like the branding and how it looks now is a lot more welcoming. And I think the the um, membership base is more diverse. So I think mm. it, there will have, there'll be challenges, but I think it will get bigger because the people are out there. Yeah, they are. Yeah, that's the contradiction, isn't it, with Larkin, that there's plenty, you can throw a lot of mud at him quite easily and lots of people do, but there seems to be just a lot of love for him as well. Mm. He engages people emotionally in a way that maybe, like, I mean, I love Ted Hughes, I love D.H. Lawrence, you know, but a lot of these writers don't seem to get that, like, emotional response from people that Larkin does. There's something very democratic about Larkin, mm. I think. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Democratic is the word, actually, because it, it's appealing to the universals, really. You know, he tackles these, mm-hmm. these topics head on. You know, love, sex, death, loss. Uh, you know, he goes for the jugular. Um, and I think that it speaks to people 
very directly because they can identify, you know, things that they felt in their own lives. Um, and I think this is the major pull of, of studying Larkin, but also one of yeah. the drawbacks because it is, it is deeply personal. And I, personally, when I feel my, like my research is going badly, um, <laughs> I can't really uh, dissociate that from how my life is going, really. <laughs> um, yeah, because yeah. I'm so invested in the poetry mm-hmm. and, um, you know, this, I'm steeped in it and have been for, gosh, over, over a decade uh, now. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. that's, a, that's a, a con and a, yeah. and a plus. Yeah. I think there's no better expression than what you've just said earlier about Larkin meaning so much to different people than um, Stuart Lee talks about in his recent About Larkin 51 article. The very fact that as a teenager, Stuart Lee saw Larkin as the poster boy of a kind of progressive Marxist um, anti-conservative movement. And he could, because that, that's <laughs> mm-hmm. in Larkin. Yeah. You know, you yeah, can, yeah. You can yeah. take that from it. And then he also chimes just as well with people who are more of a conservative mindset. Mm-hmm. And how, it, it's sort of like, how dare you hoodwink me so effectively? And I think that's <laughs> what was so brilliant about, you know, um, Stuart Lee's very bouncy, colourful article is there was this, you've got this sense that he was almost annoyed at that, that sleight of hand. The fact that he trusted Larkin as this poster boy for the alternative mm-hmm. as a teenager, sort of rebellious teenager, he thought he was that, uh, representative and yet yeah not at all it's yeah it's incredible how someone can do that i mean it's almost like the the apogee of poetic talent i mean how do you do that make the particular into the universal mm. in such a spectacular yeah. way and the um, universal into the particular as well because sometimes mm. it, sometimes it happens the other way around yeah um yeah. But no, it's, mm. it's, it's 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 the honesty that i think really i mean that's what appealed to me first and especially when it comes to you know, tricky topics like death. Uh, I've heard mm. some people uh, say that uh, Larkin expressing his fear of death is, is quite morbid or even cowardly. But actually, I think that acknowledging the fact that we're going to die and acknowledging that you're afraid of it is conversely quite a, a brave thing to do. It's, it would be much less mm-hmm. brave to pretend that, uh, you know, death didn't exist at all. Uh, you know, costly mm. aversion of the eyes mm. as he as he puts yeah. in, in a bar. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's how we, that's how most of us deal with oh, it, yeah, isn't of it? Course. Kind Otherwise, of either yeah. religion or a kind of woolly avoidance of thinking about it. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Larkin didn't allow himself to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think obviously we all have those moments. Uh, those are bad moments at sort of 4, 4 a.m. Uh, but obviously oh, yeah. you, can't, you can't think that like that the whole time or else you'll, you won't be able to function. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I guess that's that is what chimes so strongly with people, and um, especially you know, I found with my students um, that um, that really kind of universal sense that um, understanding that they don't usually find in poetry. Um, I mean, I've I've had students. I had um, a great student uh, when I was teaching at York called Simone, and she found out that I worked on uh, Larkin, and she went, "Oh yeah, he's that really cool goth poet." <laughs> and I was like, well, for me, he's not really a cool goth poet, but I love that. And I love that for her, he, he is. And I mean, now he very much is a cool goth poet for me because <laughs> I, I just love that. I love that description. Um, but I think, I don't know, I think for me, Larkin was what I will describe as a gateway poet because poetry <laughs> has never really chimed with me before. So Larkin was my 
was my gateway to discovering poetry and discovering this kind of career in, in poetry. Um, and so, you know, I think what, what an amazing thing this society can do is, you know, work with, uh, with younger audiences and find, find ways to help black and click with, with younger people. so much to Kyra, Clarissa and Alex for joining me and being so generous with their time and I hope you all come back before too long. The details of Alex's book Larkin's Travelling Spirit will be in the show notes. Kyra's book is due for publication next year. We did consider adding a blooper reel to this podcast as there were quite a few unscheduled appearances of pet cats interrupting the proceedings and a particularly fraught encounter with a fox in Clarissa's garden. But hey, you know, we're all professionals, so we got through it. A huge thanks to everyone who contacted the Society to say how much they'd enjoyed the Sydney Bechet episode. And if anyone has any ideas for new approaches and topics, then I'm always really interested to hear from you. A big hello to some of our new Twitter followers, Phil Hutchinson, Nostan1901, From Bard to Verse, and Deirdre Fiore. And we now have merchandise. Larkin would carefully draft his poetry in pencil, and so we decided that a tiny and all that air pencil would be just the thing that we all need. Head over to the Philip Larkin Society website and please get hold of one, and even buy one for a mate whilst you're at it. They're beautifully made and very nice to write with. It might even inspire you to write a poem or two. This podcast is generously supported by the Philip Larkin Society members. If you're not a member but are enjoying the podcast, please consider joining for lots of extra benefits, such as our About Larkin journal and early access to events. Simon Galloway is the podcast producer and the opening music is The Horns of the Morning by The Mechanicals Band. Our August podcast will feature readings of Larkin poems to celebrate what would have been his 99th birthday. And to get us in the mood, I leave you with a wonderful reading of Churchgoing by PLS member Joe James who also presents the great Right in the Schoolies podcast. Thank you, Joe. Once I'm sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting, seats and stone, and little books, sprawlings of flowers, cut for Sunday, brownish now, some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small neat organ and a tense, musty, Unignorable silence, brood, God knows, how long. Hatless I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence, move forward, run my hand around the font. From where I stand the roof looks almost new, cleaned, or restored. Someone would know, I don't. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce, Here endeth much more loudly than I'd meant. The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. Yet stop I did. In fact, I often do, and always end much at a loss like this, wondering what to look for, wondering too when churches fall completely out of use, what we shall turn them into. If we shall keep a few cathedrals, chronically, on show, their parchment, plate and picks in locked cases, and let the rest rent free to rain and sheep, shall we avoid them, 
as unlucky places. Or, after dark, will dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone, pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night see walking a dead one. Power of some sort or other will go on, in games and riddles, seemingly at random. But superstition like belief must die, and what remains when disbelief has gone? Grass, weedy pavement, brambles, buttress, sky, a shape less recognisable each week, a purpose more obscure. I wonder who will be the last, the very last, to seek this place for what it was, one of the crew that tap and jot and know what rude lofts were, some ruined bibber randy for antique, or Christmas addict, counting on a whiff of gown and bands and organ pipes and myrrh. Or will he be my representative, bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb scrub, because it held unspilt so long and equably, what since is found only in separation, marriage, and birth, and death, and thoughts of these, for which was built this special shell? For, though I've no idea what this accoutred, frousty barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here, a serious house, on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognised and robed as destinies, and that much never can be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious, and gravitating with it to this ground, which he once heard was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie round. <laughs>